Well, a marvelous Monday. I know that you may be listening on some other day, but for me, it is a marvelous Monday, and I want to welcome all of you to Rediscovering Your Passion and Purpose with Patty. I am your host, Patty Stulen, and I am the Chief Pathfinder of Pathways with Patty. Well, you know, in season two, I've been advertising it on social media as much as I can that in season two, we are not only global, because I know in season one, we had a few Canadian guests, but we are truly going international with season number two. And one of the international global guests today is Harris Eddie Hill. And they are today's guest and is an out and proud non-binary podcaster best-selling author, coach, and founder of the Center for Childhood Trauma Healing, a platform dedicated to supporting neurodivergent, queer, and high, highly empathic adults to overcome their childhood trauma and begin to thrive. Shortlisted for the Positive Impact and Sustainability Speaker of the Year at the Speakers Award, Harris is passionate about demystifying healing and helping people to connect to their own ability to heal. Clients take back their power from a medical system that doesn't always offer tangible solutions and doesn't always educate clients on their ability to heal. Harris has survived and overcome trauma, unaccepting family members, cancer, abusive relationships, physical paralysis, and mental health challenges, yet has found their way to emotional freedom and is now passing that power forward. Harris, it is a thrill to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Hey, thank you so much for the warm welcome, Patty. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good, thank you. How are you? I'm glad to hear that. As uh, I, I'm I'm doing absolutely wonderful, and I'll tell you, uh, you are uh, one of the the guests that is really kicking off season two here on a very high note for me. Uh, just based on the basics of your story that I know about. So I, I'm just thrilled for you to be able to share your story, your knowledge, your expertise in the area of trauma and how to heal it with everyone. So, uh, but I know before we get too far into this, people are going to be saying, I think I detect an accent there. And they're going to be wondering where you are from. So would you please share with everyone where you're from so they know where the accent's from? Yeah, sure. I'm from a county called Hertfordshire in England. In England. So there you have it, everybody. So now you know, as Harris tells their story, that uh, the you know where that comes from. And with that, Harris, why don't you go ahead and uh, let everybody know how you discovered your passion and purpose and share with the audience your story with trauma and how you found your way to heal it. Sure. So <clears throat> firstly, from a from a job point of view, uh, I've been entrepreneurial for like 11 years. Uh, I started my I had three businesses before. The first one was a hair and makeup design, hence the uh, colorful hair, <laughs> um, which I, I still I still very much love now. But um, I also did some professional house sitting and also had an equality business where I went and educated people about um uh, gen gender identity because um, I'm 35 now when I was 26 I realized I was non-binary and um, not only was I the only non-binary tra or trans person that I knew um, I was also the only trans non-binary person that everyone else I know knew 
So yeah. I was in this situation where I was having to educate all the time, which, as you can imagine, was pretty exhausting. And eventually, being an entrepreneur, I was like, I should charge for this. <laughs> so <laughs> you've been a trailblazer, then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's it's a, I guess it's a nice thing to be, but also it it can be a bit exhausting. So luckily, oh, I've got yeah. a lot of like entrepreneurial friends now, so I'm not not the only one. Um, but yeah, so I had those businesses, I went traveling, I came home and I was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Cause those other things, um, I kind of closed all of those businesses down. And about a month before I retrained as a NLP practitioner, which stands for neuro-linguistic programming. And it's, um, excuse me, it's, um, kind of like a, it's a coaching modality, some healing in there. And the idea is that you can work out what somebody's pro programming is in their brain and help them to change it in a way that they want to change it. So oh, it's, okay. it's very much an alternative thing. Um, but anyway, so I trained in that, went traveling, came back and it took me a while to work out what it was that I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. And I worked for the NHS, the national health service, which is our, our healthcare service in the UK. Okay. Um, and was coaching for them. And I was looking after everyday people. I was in charge. I was looking after about four different GP practices mm -hmm. uh, and all of the sort of, you know, everyday people who who belong to those practices and get their health care there. And they were, they were coming along to talk about managing their diabetes or to talk about their relationship with food or to talk about their sort of mental health or, you know, I was offering support in all these different ways and the thing that came up in every single conversation with those patients who who needed my support mm -hmm. was childhood trauma. Oh. And so I started to, you know, for example, people would, we'd talk about their relationship with food and I'd try to help them become more mindful about what they were feeling right before they reached for, for the food. Mm -hmm. Just to, you know, to get some self um just some sort of self-awareness going and actually working out what it is that, that they're try, you know, trying to do in the positive, you know, I'm trying uh -huh. to protect myself from this or that. Mm -hmm. So, and it was always childhood trauma, you know? And the thing is, is that I didn't always, I wasn't always aware of when they had used the word childhood trauma, the words childhood trauma. So sometimes mm -hmm. we would get like further down the line and I'd mention it and they'd be like, wait, do I have childhood trauma? And I'd be like, oh, um, whoops, I've got ADHD. <laughs> so my my uh, memory sometimes, uh, well, it's a bit intermittent. So I would be like, oh, well, you know, we've been, I was like, oh no, I've got to do this really gently now. I'd say, well, we were talking about this and this, and that that is, um, you know, like people, you know, you, you were saying that you have people pleasing tendencies, you struggle to say no, like you keep dating the wrong people. Like mm -hmm. those are quite like general um, signs that we would look for. And, you know, you've, you've told me about what your dad was like. So I would say that it's, it's a pretty good chance. And they'd be like, oh, my goodness. And I was like, oh, no, it was never my intention to um, kind of. It just seemed to lead that direction, huh? Yeah. And sometimes wow. I was like, this is so obvious. Like they're so open about what what their parents were like or, or what they went through that. I kind of feel like we're talking about the same thing, but they just haven't heard it labeled that way. And obviously it was never my intention to do that. Right. Um, 
but it happened that that did happen once or twice and the thing is is that when we got to the bottom of all of these things I kept recommending all these books that helped me in my own healing and it got to the point where I was doing this amazing work and all these people were having the, the most amazing uh results with sort of being more engaged with the healthcare and being more aware of what it is that they were facing and why they was sort of they felt frustrated because they couldn't do the things that they wanted to do like be more measured with their food or take their medication on time because a lot of people were like well they felt quite hopeless kind of about a new uh diagnosis or or something like that mm. mm -hmm. so it kind of turned into this very gentle introduction for all of these people. There was a couple who were already on this journey, but most of them weren't. Mm -hmm. And I'd sort of say, oh, there's, there's a book I know that might help you with this. Do you want, do you like books? And they'd say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read a book. So I'd just say, look, I, I'm just suggesting this, read it and just see what resonates. I'm not putting my spin on it whatsoever. I always try to be very careful not to do that. And they'd come back and go, you've hit the nail on the head every time. Oh my so, gosh. yeah, so I was like, I'm really passionate about this. And actually having worked inside the healthcare system and seeing what help help was available for trauma survivors, it was very little, very, right. very little. And I was like, I am passionate about this and I've been through it. And actually I've really found that I love this work. It's hard and there there are times when people get very emotional um but I find it really fulfilling in a way that my my work previously didn't involve this level of connection and I just find it absolutely amazing and help reminding people that they're they're not broken that they've just been through something hard and they're just dealing with the only strategy they had at the time is still working it still hasn't changed mm -hmm. and then once we change that to something that's more helpful for them then they're happier you know do, do you think that the reason there's so little uh information or literature out there is because it's so taboo and 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 people don't want to don't want to admit that they do have that childhood trauma or they, they think that, you know, like you mentioned the thing about the food, they figure by masking it either with food or alcohol or drugs or whatever the case may be, that that's going to, that's going to solve the, solve the problem or the issue. But do you think that the lack of information is because people are embarrassed or why, why do you think that there is so little literature and information out there? Well, I, there's there's a few different answers to this. Um, the first one that I hear a lot from the patients themselves or, or the, the clients is, but I love my mum and dad and like they're nice, they're good people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think that having childhood trauma means that your parents didn't do their best or that they're not lovely people. And that's not mm -hmm. the case at all, you know. Okay. Childhood trauma, the majority of the time, happens in families where people do love each other um, and where people did try their best. And, and a lot of it's generational. They did, you know, your parents might have had the tools at the time to, to know that what they were doing was harmful. They probably, you know, most parents, I think, think that what they're doing makes sense and that they're, they're doing their best. So 
Right. You know, I think a lot of people out of guilt struggle to go there. And then the other things, for example, psychology as a practice is a very new practice in terms of Western medicine. It's Mm -hmm. still not not a very accurate practice even people who go and get diagnosed for all sorts of you know more um serious uh mental health um disorders and things like that it's really common to get misdiagnosed and it's still a very early practice okay another thing is that um the history of mental health is very medicalized Mm -hmm. and you know I'm very pro-science I love all of that stuff but in my experience if you've been very very conditioned by training to be in the medical world that often will train a lot of the kind of emotional stuff out of you for very good reason because it, it you can't be too emotional you've got to be really really know what you're doing from a very mm-hmm. logical point of view you know if you're if you're di- you know if you think oh this patient might have cancer we should test them for that it can't be an emotional thing you can't get drawn in you've as as a, as a doctor or surgeon sure. uh, and maybe even a nurse it has to be that way mm-hmm. however i think that that kind of medical uh, 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 this isn't a conspiracy thing. This is just how it feels to me. Um, yes, yes. That kind of medical machine and, and giant is very, you know, it's very steeped in, um, you know, unfortunately it's informed by a lot of, a lot of racism and exclusion mm. and a lot of kind of training that, that emotional stuff out of people, as I said, mm-hmm. for good reason, but it, there is a deficit there. Right. And as such, I think it's very difficult for that industry that feels that it has a monopoly on healthcare in general to then be able to really accurately understand the emotional stuff mm-hmm. the emo you know because from a healing perspective in my work you know the way that trauma happens is in relationship to other people and it's an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's good to talk about it and to understand and to analyze and to be more self-aware and all of those things. But how do we actually in the end fix those things in relation to another person within an emotional experience? Right. So it's one thing, it's one thing to diagnose it, but it's another to figure out how to help that person heal. Correct. Yes. And to me, that is a very, very simple concept. Mm -hmm. But having worked in the NHS and talked to, you know, mostly GPs, um, you know, general practitioner doctors, they, for example, I was shadowing uh, a GP uh, in my induction to my job. And we had a patient come in and she'd come to talk about like reviewing medication or something just very functional but when the doctor said oh I haven't seen you in a while how are you doing she described um, an incident where she'd uh, broken her ankle Mm -hmm. and she immediately started crying and after she left the doctor said what were your 
what did you notice? I said, well, I, I think, you know, it's been six months now. She's still very emotional about the accident. So I would really love to work with her to see if we can process that that emotion that's that high high charge that's still there mm-hmm. she said wow that is really perceptive of you and I thought she was fucking crying <laughs> I I don't think it's wizardry you know right. like, we, we both we we both can see we both could hear her she was crying it was very obvious you, you know? didn't need a medical degree to see that yeah yeah so <laughs> I kind of you know, so so there's that side of things. And the last thing that I will mention is that I think being in a position of, of, of great responsibility when you're working with somebody, especially someone who's vulnerable and had trauma and stuff, is absolutely a big responsibility. Oh, yes. And so far... The people that we think to go to especially in the western world if we especially if we're not religious or anything like that mm-hmm. is that we would go to a mental health person who you know a psychologist psychiatrist or a therapist mm-hmm. which is totally fine i'm not saying you know i encourage people to do that yeah but the thing is is that all of those practices are the or very much the art of talking about it analyzing it becoming more self-aware you know, and and kind of getting to understand how how that client's brain is working, the things that they're thinking, and trying to kind of maybe mirror that or challenge that a little bit or encourage people to be more self-compassionate, all of those sorts of things, which is great, mm-hmm. but it's not the whole picture. Right. And those of us who are kind of doing the more healing parts and, and helping people to have these different emotional experiences uh, in and processing these traumas and these difficult things most of us are not therapists right, right we do things that are considered alternative even though I think it's a bit nuts to think that what I do is alternative right because to me it's a very simple um very obvious thing but there we go and as such our our profession and our industry is not as well regulated okay and so I think that it's more difficult to for people to trust you because you know once upon a time or in or even in a different culture you would have a local healer or somebody that, or a spiritual leader or somebody that you can would confide in who would get, offer you much wisdom and you know in some places they use things like plant medicine which now we understand now there's people yes. started to become less um hysterical about it right we're realizing actually there's great validity to this. Not yes. not that I I practice that, but I'm I'm very, you know, pro things that work. Right. And right. it's become this thing of like, oh, you know, don't be be careful about who you're going to and who you're trusting. And yes, we should be that, but I think it's got to the point where the only people we think of to help us are are, are therapists. Mm-hmm when they only offer part of the solution, not the whole solution. And and that's the same for me. None of us hold the key to the whole solution. Right. It's a group is to, to help somebody to heal and to thrive is a massive group effort f- through many, many people, professionals and friends and family and stuff. Cause you got to look at the whole person, not just part of that person yes. in order to heal. You've got to look at the help, the whole person. 
Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that I talk about so much um, with my clients is that so, so many of them um, will be able to have this deep conversation with me and and really be able to be themselves. But in their real life, they're not practicing that. Mm -hmm. They don't have deep friendships with other people sometimes or they avoid romantic relationships when really they want one. And obviously not everybody does, but, you know, a lot of mm -hmm. people do avoiding. And, mm -hmm. um, and most of the time, I'm sure they don't realize that they don't have those friendships or those relationships, but they have convinced themselves that they do or they don't. It's amazing or that they how, don't need it. Yeah, they, yes, they don't, they don't need it. And so by working with somebody like you, you're able to help them to realize that, I would think. Yes, definitely. And I think when somebody can start, they start to really open up and I'm like, you really can say anything as so long as you're not horrible to me personally <laughs> or do it or do something really inappropriate. You can say and be whatever you want. And I genuinely don't care. Like it's, mm. you know, I've got clients who are even more woo woo than me. I do like a bit of the spiritual stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very happy to practice our sessions in in using terminology that they understand and other people who are not so much and I talk much more in terms of sort of psychology and emotional intelligence so mm -hmm. you know it, it's really interesting and then at the end towards the end I start to ask them questions like how are you going to emulate this deep connection in in the rest of your life because so much of the healing that happens happens in real life not with a professional not with me not with a therapist it happens when you start to get the hang of relationships and choosing good people, choosing people that you wouldn't have chosen before because it wasn't part of your programming. You know, mm -hmm. when you stop choosing people like your parents with issues like your parents or or if it's not your parents or other people that mistreated you, when you start choosing people who are different, you know, logically that they're good, but they often feel unfamiliar to begin with. Right. And it's about recognizing that actually it is probably going to feel that way. And providing you feel safe, your nervous system is calm. Mm -hmm. You're probably fine. You just got to mm -hmm. keep going until it's your new normal. Right. Right. So it's it's retraining your brain to think in ways that you never thought of before. Yes, but more deeply than that, to feel in your body the way you haven't felt before. Got it. Because you can logically recognize so i i i had a friend and um she's quite a lot younger than me when when i was traveling and she we were talking about relationships she said i've only ever really had one relationship and the guy i was with was um she called him a lot of colorful names <laughs> and uh, <laughs> i was like yeah yeah i i relate to that i've been there that's that's fair enough and um she met this new guy and she was like he's so nice it's disgusting <laughs> Oh, <laughs> she was like it feels like she was like he he opens the door for me and he does this and I just it's so it, she was like it's cringy like my body oh. like, it, it's disgust like I hate it she was like I'm so oh. turned off I said it's because it's unfamiliar yeah oh and, and how sad is that well I she said at one point you know they ended up uh, getting pregnant and um you know that and she was like, he, he's, you know, he's, he helps me to like hang the washing. He stops me from doing this and that. I was like, if this annoys you, just, just say to him, thank you for your help. But I, I do actually want to do this myself. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh, I can say that. I was like, yeah, you can, you can say whatever you want. 
just don't be mean, but you can say what you want. She was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Oh. So she did that and she came back and said, oh, it works. I said to him, thank you, but I don't want you to do that. And he was like, oh, no problem. <laughs> and now they've been together for years and they're on their fourth pregnancy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, was that just because she just wasn't used to people being kind to her? Yeah, she comes from a particular uh, part of the world where it's very rough. Everybody, you know, you have to be very assertive, very independent. Mm-hmm. Um you know, people being sweet and soft was not what she was used to. She was like, I don't get what this is. I was mm. like, it's good, actually. It is, it's healthy. This is what I, I said to her, all, all of the things that you used to complain about when you were with the last one, what were they? And she was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. I was like, all the things that he is. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so the the thing is it's not i think until you have somebody to actually help you through this often you do end up with the wrong people over and over again friends or partners or whatever or you stay in contact with family members who just violate your boundaries all the time or make you uncomfortable or mm-hmm. say mean things or are disrespectful but it's because it's normal to you like your brain and your body like that's what you know that's what feels familiar even though it's unpleasant right so actually getting through I don't think it takes very long but I think in getting through experience something good is actually very hard and and in your body it feels un can feel really unpleasant um well and I I think through all that trauma too don't we build up a wall an imaginary wall that we feel keeps us safe uh protects us and the thought of sharing our story or or revealing it to somebody else then that means we have to start breaking down that wall and because that's what's protecting us has been protecting us for so long i think our body physically and mentally does not want to let go of that does it you get some of that but okay this is where attachment comes in because i think and and things like codependency because some people's reaction to trauma is to become hyper independent. I don't need anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't rely on anyone. You know, that's one version. I mean, you can be lots of versions, but one one of the other common ones is to overshare, be overly available, mm-hmm. to almost not like not have boundaries there. Like you're you're too giving, you're too available, wow. you're too nice, you're there, there's no you know, if somebody wants to start a relationship really fast, you just go with it, even if you feel uncomfortable. You know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. people pleasing and and kind of almost no, you know, there's almost no separation between you and, and other people. Okay. I, I definitely know when I was younger, if someone was interested, that was it. I didn't even really think if I was interested in them or I was like, oh, I, this is an opportunity to have love and affection you you just went for it yeah every time okay it was um yeah I was I wasn't too forward because I was still quite shy but it was kind of like if I think I'd grown up in a household I'm non-binary but obviously I've modeled a lot of uh, or I did model a lot of my behavior on uh, women growing up and a lot of the things I saw were subservient women doing things that the men wanted them to do Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. constantly sort of for the the pleasure, convenience, or what like service of men. 
Right. So I think growing up, it, it nobody ever told me, like, just because someone likes you doesn't mean you have to go out with them. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean that I did it every time. Right. But I don't. But what I'm trying to explain is that I, there wasn't like enough of a actually, what do I want? Do I really want this or is this the right person for me or am I com- am I even comfortable? All of now, that did, was. Did, did you did you find in those relationships that whatever they liked or whatever they wanted, that you just went along with it, whether it was what you truly believed that you wanted and needed? Oh, yeah. Because my safety was caught up in their happiness. Because so often when you've survived childhood trauma, you survived it because you learned. Well, there's different ways, but for a lot of folks who come to me, they've survived their childhood trauma because they learned how to predict, uh, navigate, and often like meet the needs of the adults in their lives. Mm-hmm. So you turn that into how you relate to your partner or people that you're dating. Your focus mm-hmm. is totally on them. Like, are they happy? And if they're happy, then you can feel safe. And that's that's your primary thing. It's like, I have to survive uh-huh. all of my relationships. Right. And in order to do that, I have to make sure they're happy. And if they're happy, that's all that matters. Because then they uh-huh. won't explode. They won't reject me. They won't leave me. Right. Okay. That make, I mean, that makes sense. It's, I mean, it's sad, but that does, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's powerful. I mean, to know, to know that when people are working with you, that they would come to that realization, uh, I would just, I mean, talk about an aha moment. That's, I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. It's really interesting because some, some people, when I tell them what I do, they're like, oh, wow. They're like, oh, do you need a lot of time to like recover from that? And I'm like, no, no, because I think because I've dealt with, you know, the majority of my own stuff that to me, this is like this is helping and this is deep connection with other human beings. And that's what I love. And actually, deep connection means that you see the good bits, the difficult bits, the funny bits, the sad bits Mm -hmm. like that. That to me is what work worth doing. And, well, and it's interesting that you just now said that because right before you just made that statement, I was going to ask you because I, I have a couple friends who are therapists and because they've been doing it for so long, they are beginning to burn out because they sadly have taken on so much of what their clients have been taking and have been you know sharing with them. That that's what I was going to ask you. How do you make sure that you take care of yourself and keep yourself mentally and physically well when you are working with people to help them with their trauma? But how you just explained it, I do understand that because of you being someone that has experienced that in the work that you've done on with yourself, that that would help you process what they're sharing with you. Yes. Well, it's partly what I said, but it's also the thing is, is that what I do with people, you know, I refer to as trauma processing. And mm-hmm. this is something that most people have not experienced yet, or they've not gone to do this. Right. So even if you've got a therapist who, you know, I've got friends who are therapists and haven't had the same treatment and done the same stuff that I've done. And until you have had that kind of support and healing, people are going to, you know, the people that turn up in your practice in your room are going to often trigger you Mm. 
So that's one thing. And also it's quite normal in, in a therapist's life, you know, or, or in their sort of week to week life to have a huge amount of um, people that they're working with one to one. And I don't do that mm, okay, because I can't be present enough. And the third thing is that trauma processing is quick. The majority of people that I work with have never needed more than three months. Oh, wow. Because if you think about how quickly a trauma can happen, think how quickly it can be healed. The, all the brain is doing is just changing. Mm -hmm. So with complex trauma, obviously that can take a little bit longer because it's lots of different aspects and many lots of conditioning that you've been through. And it starts to affect like your sense of self and your how you think, how you relate to other people. Whereas if it was like simple PTSD, like a car crash, for example, that's like a one thing that happened. And it doesn't necessarily make you start to change your character or your behavior or how you talk to other people. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's it's a different right. kind of experience. So right. complex trauma does take a bit longer, but it's not like for me, I think it takes maybe three to six appointments with people to get a really good picture of what we're dealing with and dig it all out. And then we can kind of put it into like categories of things and we get to the root cause of each of those and then process one of those per session so 12 sessions usually we get to 12 sessions and people turn up with a big smile on their face and they're like I'm done I don't feel like there's anything left and I'm like yes so I didn't decide <laughs> it was going to be 90 days three months it just happened that way Wow. So you, so when you work with people, you're working with the, with a group of people at the same time, is that what you're doing? Or it is in, in individual that you are working with them? So currently it's one-to-one, -one, but okay. I am about to also launch a group program where a lot of the stuff I do with my one-to-one -one clients, you can, there's a lot of that stuff. You don't need to do it one-to-one. Uh, -one. So, And then you meet with them eat once a week. Is that how, what you also do during those three months? Yes. Yeah. Once a week for 12 weeks. Wow. H how interesting. How long was it that you were doing this before you started to notice that 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 was uh, the approximate timeline it was taking people to help them? Well, I noticed it with my first ever two clients that had that was like they were just casual. They were. Um, I, I was doing a bit of a swap with people and it was through through the pandemic. Um. And I noticed that we would get to 12 weeks and they'd go, oh, I'm done. And I was like, oh, good. You know, it's always always good to know that people don't need you anymore. And um, I was like, oh, okay. And then I started doing the same again the, this year. And the same thing was happening, 12 weeks. And people were like, oh, I'm, I'm done now. And I, I started to expect it. Wow. So it's quick. That, I mean, that's pretty amazing that, that that I mean because if you try to create okay this is going to be a three-month program because you know most of most people that have you know are coat life coaches or whatever okay in this six weeks or this three months but you didn't do that it's just whatever it takes them and to know that that's pretty much the the time span for that that tells me that you are really doing a marvelous job with how you handle each one of the sessions when you work with them for it to pretty much just on its own to be that timeline. 
Thank you. Well, I hope so. I'm I'm just, I think so much of what I do is intuitive. I'm just listening to what people are saying and just sort of like really getting a picture like as, as quickly as I can of where this is coming from. And, you know, I mean, it's probably a bit annoying, but it works. <laughs> like sometimes Obviously people... Yeah. It can't be that annoying if it's working, right? Well, no, it's not. But there are just moments where I'm kind of laughing at myself because, you know, someone will say, you know, for example, um, this thing happened in my 20s and this is how I feel felt about it. And decades later, I'm still feeling very strongly. Every time I think about this, I feel very emotional and I'm upset. And I'm like, is that the first time someone, I don't know, spoke to you that way or did this thing? And they're like, yeah. And intuitively my my energy's going their mum did that as well and but I don't and I'm like mm -hmm. is that definitely the first time mm -hmm. and they'll sit and think about it and they go actually no it wasn't my mum did that to me when I was like five and I was like there it is mm -hmm. <laughs> so wow. now, now do you feel that um with each person because every person is different and their trauma is different because of you mentioning your empathic abilities, do you feel that that is what is primarily guiding you through each of these sessions with each one of your, your clients? No, I think it's a really big mixture and I think it's important to have a big mixture. So for the past 10 years, I've been studying psychology, healthy relationships, um, emotional well-being, all of that sort of thing. So I think if I didn't have all of that knowledge, when people mm -hmm. were experiencing a thing, I wouldn't even know in my own brain how to categorize that or what to call that, let alone be able to educate the client as well. Because right. a lot of the a really good habit I picked up from my work in the NHS was that um, after every session, I would send, you know, together me and the patient would come up with something to support our learning or to or to continue their development in the following week until their next appointment so what people are doing with me I've often got a resource to support a particular learning um so one example is that um you know I might have a you know another non-binary or trans person who's um kind of exploring like um physical intimacy again but afresh as themselves and they're like I'm not doing it the kind of socially prescribed way anymore and my relationship with my body's different so you know how how do I navigate that and I'm I'm like oh, I have a book and this this is really good and it talks a lot about being conscious around this type of relationship and how to listen to our bodies and listening for a yes and a no and mm -hmm. all the you know, different practices and stuff so it's not just I think part of the reason that it's as quick as it is is because there's lots of learning going on at the same time mm -hmm. outside of the sessions and I think that that is also really crucial and it's another thing that I want my clients to get out of it that they often don't get out of therapy because I think sometimes there's this feeling of like, well, I'm I'm the professional, I'm the mental health person, so I'm just going to help this person with what they've asked for. Right. Whereas for me, I want my clients to know what to call things, to know what what is the name of it when people behave that way and what does that look like? How does it feel? What actually do I want that or do I want the different version? And this is what the healthy version is called. Mm -hmm. So 
there's a lot of education that goes on as well so that people have the answers and even if they did need to come back to me or somebody else they would get to the answer of it very quickly they don't need to spend a year going like oh why do I keep dating the wrong people right and someone's going why do you think it is whereas yeah. I turn around and I say well listen I've got these four books they teach you like it helps you to build a framework what does healthy look like and what does it feel like and actually now we've got a name for it have you experienced that healthy thing before and they're like yes I have a friend who does this and I'm like yay so you do know what it is you want more of that and they're like I can do that I know what that looks like so right it's a bit more practical and a bit more results driven so I think well, and, it, it, and what it's also sounding like is I think with a lot of people, when they're going to see a therapist, you know, they'll share their story or, or whatever they believe the issue is. And then they they want that therapist to give them a solution. And it sounds like what you are doing is once they are sharing these things based on the questions that you are asking but you're giving them the resources and the tools then to be able to discover also on their own. You're not, it's not like just giving them a drug and saying, here, take, take two of these each night before you go to bed and you'll be better. You are educate, you're helping them to educate themselves to finding a solution or maybe not even a solution, but a way to deal with that, that trauma they've experienced. And that, that's where the that's where the power comes into what you are doing is because you're just not saying oh well this is how you how you fix this you're not you're not you're guiding them but they in essence are 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 figuring out that how how to work through it i mean that's a novel concept i think for a lot of okay. people because they because we're we're so used in our society now that you know fast food, fat, you know, fast internet, fast everything. Just give me a pill so I can move on. But you're not doing that. You are truly, you're not only educating them, but they are educating themselves based on the resources you are sharing with them. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, this is one of the things that I'm really passionate about because, you know, at a certain point in our history, not that long ago, and I still know elderly people who still do this when they go to the doctor and the doctor says oh well you need to take this pill and they're like okay yes yes doctor that's it Mm -hmm. yes whereas a lot of us now and in fact a lot of my american friends who have to do a lot of the navigating healthcare themselves because it's not Mm -hmm. as integrated as it is here um now people are more educated about health in general and different conditions and it's not taboo to talk about it anymore in the same way that it used to be mm-hmm. we're all more informed and I want people to feel that way about their mental health mm-hmm. I don't want them to be like well if my mental health is bad the only thing I can do is talk to a therapist I'm like no right. you can go there are lots of different people depending on what you want help with that is just as healing and maybe even a bit more practical. You know, I know people who, uh, for example, have uh, experienced like sexual trauma. And so they want to experience safety with another person. So I I, I have a friend um, who employed somebody um, who I think he's a, he's a tan- maybe tantric or sex coach or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what they did is that they stood at opposite ends of a room and he said, 
you can say green for go, amber for stop, or red for step back. And each time you say green, I'll take one step forward. <clears throat> and when you say amber, you want me to stay there. And when you say red, I'll take a step back. And all of this is coming from your body. How comfortable do you feel? And it was such a simple concept. But it gave her the experience of like, actually, I have wisdom within my own body. I'm now connecting to my own sense of what's right and, and what I need and what I want. And that's what I hope that I'm doing for my clients, because I want them to feel like they know themselves well enough to be like, I think this is what I need or this this is what it feels like or to know the right questions to ask or to to understand what they're dealing with. Because mm -hmm. you have to live with you the whole of your life. Right. There is nobody else. You know, if you can't get hold of a mental health person at a certain point or you're you're sick of having been in the mental health world for 20 years and still traumatized or still with the same issue. Mm -hmm. It's I think it's wrong. Right. Well, and one of my mottos and how I sign off on my podcast is and my newsletters, your life matters. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, truly, sadly, don't believe that there are a lot of people that really believe that statement. And, and, and with working with you, I believe that what you are doing is just that you are showing people in a various various ways and through resources that their life matters everybody wants to be validated everyone wants to know that they are here for a reason and a purpose and sometimes because of those traumas we have lost our way or our direction but you are bringing them back to center and showing them that their life matters and that that's power that that's powerful for someone to realize that Thank you. Wow. So, so at what age or what stage of your life did you realize that you had a passion for helping others? <laughs> so even as a kid, I was the one that people came to talk to when they had a problem. Mm. And the thing is, is that I'm autistic and my communication and interpersonal skills has been something I've really had to learn as an mm. adult. Mm. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't a nightmare before, but it was just, <laughs> if there wasn't like an organic thing that happened, then it just didn't happen. And I was like, I don't really know what to do with this. Uh -huh. um, so, and yet, you know, I spent my my childhood and, and into my twenties of being very much lent, lent on by other people. Mm -hmm. And being like, I don't, really, I don't really know what to say to you. Um, and just being like, oh, you know, and I don't, it, it was just a thing that I, that I always had. Mm -hmm. And then I think when I was in secondary school, which is ages 11 to 18 here, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously my friends and I, we went, we went to a very high performing school and everyone was talking about what career they wanted. And I was like, I don't really know. I don't really have a strong feeling. You know, I was very creative and I write and, you know, mm -hmm. 
But so I don't really have a strong sense. And they're like, you should really be a counsellor. And I was like, absolutely not. Oh. Absolutely not. <laughs> Over they saw my it before you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm ab-. And they're like, but you're so good. Like, you're so good to talk to and all this sort of thing. And I was like, oh, God, like, I want to escape this. I'm so burdened, even by my own family and my, you know, older <laughs> members of my family. I was like, oh, I, I'm trying to escape this. So it took a really long time to come back to this space of like, not only am I good at this, but I'm actually starting to enjoy it. I think the more healed I became and the more boundaried I became, I then found that once I was having conversations that I consented to, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is actually really good. Mm. And... um having ADHD means that I've tried many different things and a lot of them I got bored with really quickly and this is the one that I haven't Mm -hmm. and um I was like yeah I think that's a pretty big clue so I think really it was there to begin with Mm -hmm. but it's taken a really long time for me to come around to a point where I I want it and I choose it right so yeah, and I, I just, yeah, I think since I, I got trained uh, in NLP, as I mentioned earlier, in 2018. So mm-hmm. it's been over over five years since I was trained. And Good. obviously done it professionally in the NHS and, mm-hmm. you know, been doing it on, on the side and then now like full time for a long time. So mm-hmm. I was like, now yeah. I know, now I know that you've mentioned through our conversation about your own, that, you know, through your own childhood trauma so you have faced some traumatic challenges in your life are are there any parts of that that you you want to share with our audience uh on that or yeah i'm happy to i'm happy to i won't share any graphic details um just sure. so that people who are listening and need the information won't be triggered or anything but um, right. i will just mention the headlines so <clears throat> um the first time i was sexually assaulted by a man i was 10 years old Mm-hmm. and then that happened again with an abusive partner in my teens and then it happened again um when I was 26 when I was on a first date with somebody I knew mm. um who was supposed to take me home and didn't oh wow so there was that that mm. you know and that for me was s- simple PTSD and, and whilst I lived with that type of PTSD it was so strong it was very very extreme I'd only have to read a you know um one sentence in on the newspaper or something and i would mm-hmm. be not okay i would be you know very very dysregulated upset crying often i would lock myself in my car or in a bathroom oh wow um cuz i just felt so unsafe and i was completely freaked out so wow. you know that that might last for a good 20 minutes to half an hour so that was pretty extreme and then that was healed in two sessions when i was 29 wow and that was when I was like, oh, because I had I had been in and out of different places, you know, doctors, counsellors, psychiatrists, everything. All of, since I was 13, I started asking for help. Um, and they were like, oh, that that's too bad. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. But what can I but what can I do about it? They're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, how can I how can I make this better? And they were like, I don't. I don't get what you're saying. It was like I was speaking a different language. And then obviously then I got it treated so quickly. And I was like, this is 
insane this is absolute madness and I think this is where a little bit of my strong feelings about traditional mental health comes in Mm -hmm. because we don't we're not all responsible for doing everything you know we our job and our our area and what's within our scope is perfectly okay Mm -hmm. I think the where the problem comes in is that it's not even acknowledged that other modalities other people who can help exist and that other solutions are out there because mm-hmm. and I think people are very tied to how they've been trained and very opposed to, to anything else a lot of the time so that was the simple PTSD so I had that treated when I was 29 okay. uh, the following year is when I trained myself as a coach and then I went traveling that year at the end of 2018 and I came back a little over a year later after having a breakdown I went back to my therapist and said I'm still not okay like something's wrong and I I don't have the words for it but it comes up and I recognize that there's a pattern here but I don't have the words for it I don't know what it's called I just mm-hmm. I feel it I I've identified where it is in my body and when it comes up and I recognize it every single time but I don't know what it's called and I but I think it's true tra- it must be trauma from what I could work out like can you help me and in the gap of then from the last time I went to see her, she had done her master's in traumatology. Oh, wow. So I went back. We did this very long assessment that took bloody ages. <laughs> and at the end, she went, right, you have complex PTSD. And I was like, right, OK. Wow. So as a result of upbringing and family generational trauma, all these all this different stuff and it was hard to hear that. And at the same time, I was relieved. I was like, I'm not imagining this. I now have a name for it. So now right. I can actually start the process of knowing, of like actually dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And again, that process took several months. Um, and all of so much of the modalities that she used to help me to process, actually process my trauma by help, helping my brain to have different emotional experiences to you know finish off that trauma memory or loop or whatever mm-hmm. um was exactly the same as my nlp so much of it's been taken from nlp which is what i'm trained in so i was like oh so i actually have the tools to do this they really you know they really do work so um i'm i'm trying to think of okay so is that what what you mean um uh in your your bio where it talks about neurodivergent what what exactly is is that what does so neurodivergence so neurodivergence is anything that means that your brain is different so it could be adhd autism dyslexia dyspraxia any anything under that umbrella some people also consider trauma a type of neurodivergence because it does change your brain Okay. But given that you can recover from it and it's an adaptive condition, okay, I don't know if it definitely is that. I, I tend to think of neurodivergence as an organic thing that you're born with. Mm-hmm. And that's just how you are. Yeah. So so through through the traumas that you have experienced, not just childhood, but through your teens and into adulthood, did you happen to find that at any point during that timeline that you lost your passion and purpose?
I think, yeah, during during 2018, that was when I retrained and closed my businesses down and went traveling. And it was that January, uh, I was at a conference for coaches, even though at that point in time, my main business was hair and makeup. And it was odd because I loved helping people to feel their best with their, you know, with their hair and what they look like and stuff. But as far as actual hair and makeup itself, I was not that bothered. And people would be like, oh, have you seen this new product that's out or this? And I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's not about that for me. It's about it's about the people. Mm-hmm. And so that January, I was at this conference. And that was when the lady who ended up training me in NLP had said during this conference, like, who wants to come and talk to me about further training? And I was like, I found my hand in the air like me. And uh, I was like, oh, that's a surprise. So I went to go and speak with her and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then that kind of spring, I started to earn some really good money and I didn't care. I didn't want to get out of bed. Mm. I became, you know, I think it looked like a, maybe like a very mild breakdown a bit Mm -hmm. I just became disinterested. I was like, this is not floating my boat anymore. I don't care about it. I feel like a fraud because I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, I got paid to work at another uh, Amster- conference in Amsterdam and and made good money for the sake of three days work. Mm-hmm. And I just you weren't passionate care. about it. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. No. And, it, you know, things I started to book bigger clients and international clients and people who would get me to do their sort of hair color and haircut whilst they were in, in the UK, but they didn't live. Do you know what I mean? Or people who would coincide their appointments with me for coming over to, to England. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, younger me would have been like, Oh wow, that's amazing. But I, I was not interested. Mm -hmm. So, so through that, what would you say is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? don't know that I had any advice at the at the time because nobody really got what I was going through you know my my family Mm -hmm. very business orientated Mm -hmm. but either they're very transactional and try to make a big business out of something that they're not particularly passionate about and don't understand that some of us can't fake it you know, if you're not interested, there's no dopamine as an ADHD person, then you li- you can't manufacture that. It's just not there. Right. Or the people I know who do have a business that they care about, it was never their intention to go big. You know, they mm-hmm. are often supported by spouses who are the main breadwinners and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think I was scared. I was really scared that my entrepreneurial stuff was just going to die and that it wouldn't be replaced by anything. Right. And I now know that that's not the case. I think once you have the bug, it's there. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can, you know, even when you retire, I promise, like I've seen it enough now to, to be confident about this, but I think even when you retire, there'll be, you have to do something. 
you know. I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a living example of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, that's why, and that's why this, this program is called rediscovering your passion and purpose, because I would have never thought about writing books in my retirement. I would I certainly never thought about doing a podcast like I'm doing now, but, but I mean, isn't that exciting to know that no matter what phase of life that you are rediscovering your passion and purpose it it's what keeps you going and it what it's what makes life exciting. Mm, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And that that's cool to know that the unexpected can be okay and it can work out in ways that you never imagined. I think that's the thing. Whatever your brain can conceive of at the moment is only is so limited. Like what's gonna happen? If you'd have told me, don't worry, when you close your, all your businesses down and sell your furniture and move to Australia, when you come back, you'll be twice published and this will happen and that will happen. I'd have been like, oh, thank goodness for that. That's fine. <laughs> but I didn't know. Nobody told me. Right. I just had to trust. Yes. Yeah. Um, I cannot remember who who said the quote, but it was something about if your if your dreams don't scare you a little bit, they're not big enough. Yeah. And I, and I think for the most part, all of us, including myself, we think that we're dreaming big, but in reality, we're, we're keeping it safe and we're keeping it small. And, uh, uh, just, just something that just happened to me a couple days ago when I was in Canada, uh, there is the, in Toronto, there is what's called the CN tower and you can do what's called an edge walk and you're strapped in a harness and outside of the top of this tower a hundred what is it 166 stories high you are outside walking leaning over the tower with nothing there um did i ever dare to dream of doing something like that no uh but it just goes to prove that sometimes uh we just don't we don't dare to dream large enough for ourselves and the possibilities that are out there. And yeah. uh, I, I think that that's what, what you're, you're basically saying is that don't, don't be afraid to dream too big. That. And also I think like, don't, I, I, I feel like in having doing business many times and in my own life and my own self kind of dying and being reborn also many times. Mm-hmm. I find it very hard to surrender, but I think in doing that, actually, and even I think it's okay to dream, but I think you've got to keep it a bit loose because I think the moment that you stop trying to have this control, like I often think of like dreams and wants as like this little kitten and you've kind of got to hold it really delicately because it's and and give it space to grow and to become the Mm. thing that it's going to become because otherwise you're, you know, you might love it and care about it, but if you just like squeeze it too tight, its little eyes yes. are bulging out, and you're not going to allow it to do what it's going to do. Right. And that's far more exciting. And I think things will happen that you can't dream of. Like you're not capable yet of dreaming the things that are going to happen because very true. You're you're not even there. Like you can't dream about an experience you've not had yet. I think you can. Right. You can think to yourself like general things like I want a better job or a better partner or partners or, um, you know, I dream of having my own um, business one day or of, of having a family or whatever. But 
you get re like really too specific about it and you're like it has to happen specifically this way otherwise I'm going to be right. really hacked off and like really disappointed and it's just unless it happens exactly this way it's going to be rubbish and it's not worth doing and you have right. to be really and you're set you are setting yourself up for failure and and major disappointment when you do that you're absolutely correct on that yeah. yes I think this is where you know, there's a lot of talk in, you know, recent years about things like manifesting. I, I love all of that. I think it's very, um, you know, can be used in a very positive and fun way. And I think that's that's the point of it. Right. To have to have mm -hmm. fun with things. Mm -hmm. But I think that especially if you've had a lot of traumas, a lot of your safety comes from control and over planning and like things are going to happen specifically this way. Mm -hmm. And. I think it can be much more difficult to sit with the possibilities if it feels too chaotic or too unpredictable. Right. And it's amazing. I don't know. Are you a fan of manifesting and woo woo things? You, you know, it's what it's, it's one. I mean, I definitely believe in karma, you know, mm. and, and what you put out in the world, you get back. And uh, it, the manifestation part of it is something that uh, I really only started uh, hearing more about within the past year because of this new venture of me starting my my business and and all of that sort of thing. Uh, before then, it, during my years of, of of teaching, the thing that I had been taught from an early age was setting goals for your life and then, you know, working and whether some people want to call that manifestation, I, you know, envision boards, that part, I understand manifestation. I'm, I'm still, I'm still looking at that. And I know that okay. the, many of my, my friends, uh, that, that is the key to, to everything with them. And, and, uh, so I think there's validation to all, all of it. And it is interesting, but I wouldn't say that I'm a hundred percent. And I think part of that too, is because of my faith in God and my Christian beliefs on, I think that is a big part of, of how I, how I see my life moving forward I because it isn't because with, because I keep forgetting I, I, I'm not in charge here. I want to believe that I'm in charge and then God has a good laugh and says, yeah, Patty, right. You keep thinking that you're in charge because I never understand. It's like, well, why am I doing this? And why is this happening? And sometimes it just happens. And my thing is about when it happens, whether it, because every choice we make has a consequence and whether it's a good consequence or bad, I have not always made the wisest choices. It's learning the lesson. If I need to have a pity party, have the pity party. Don't pitch a tent there. Learn learn from it and, and move forward. That's mm -hmm. how I look at things. And things do manifest out of that. <clears throat> Would I like to win the lotto? Yeah, but I'm not so sure by manifesting that that's going to happen. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to put anybody down if that's what they want to believe in. You sure. go for it. If that's what makes you happy, go for okay. it. Okay, so what I was going to say, and I'll put this in your in terms that are sort of more aligned to you, is that in terms of my work, the thing that trauma survivors struggle a lot with is long-term thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I was talking to a manifestation like raving fan, then I would say that trauma 
inhibits your ability to be in a in a different state of mind or the mm. state of mind that you're looking for and that's either way that's why the work is so important if you're looking forward in your life and struggling to either envisage that there is a future at all mm -hmm. or to even hope for more because trauma is such a protective thing i know that people get angry about it because it, it you know it if, if, if it's left untreated and you don't have the support it can ruin you know relationships and sure. um make it you know for some people it makes it very different difficult for them to go to work some people tell me like as a result of my trauma I've developed fibromyalgia things like that mm -hmm. um obviously that's not for me to comment on but that that's what they tell me right and it it massively affects long-term thinking and a really magical thing that happens when you heal your trauma is that you often forget that you had it so when I come mm. on to talk, so I, I was going to say I got sidetracked earlier by myself <laughs> and didn't give any examples of childhood trauma. And I'm happy to to do that. But when you get rid of it, it's often that you forget that you had it. Like I remember sessions that I've had with people, but I have no idea what we talked about because what we healed is no longer alive in me. Right. No. And I, I have to think really hard. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I think I was talking about my parents that time. Or sometimes I'm like, oh, I think it was maybe to do with money or something. But it's so vague, like it's literally gone. And and so much of your thinking then becomes like present moment. And then you think about the future and all the things you want. It used to fill me with terror when I was younger. A, I couldn't think about anything long term. Everything was in the moment, like to survive the moment, the day, the week. Mm -hmm. So it made me not great with money. Um. I know other other people, other trauma survivors who it made them cling on to money because they they felt like that's the only thing I've got, right. you know, who who and, and who have got themselves really high powered jobs, but never had or wanted kids, which is fine, obviously, and never got married, mm -hmm. even though they wanted to, because their survival was predicated for them on their ability to provide money for themselves so that they didn't have to rely on it on their family or anyone else. Right. So, you know, it can manifest in so many different ways. Um, for me growing up, we weren't, we kind of weren't allowed to have money mm -hmm. or, or, you know, it was this thing of like, there would be an agreement about pocket money, but then within a few weeks, it'd be completely forgotten about. So right. I grew up with this feeling of like, oh, I don't, I don't deserve money. And if I have it and someone finds out that I've got it, then I have to, I have to get rid of it quickly. Like it felt like a really right. scary thing to have money. Cause I was like, this isn't my role. Like my role in the family is to cost people money and for them to complain about it. <laughs> um, you know, but there was, there were other things like I'm the eldest of three and um, I was definitely the performing monkey <laughs> and I had extracurricular activities after school every day. Uh -huh. And as, as an autistic ADHD person, I would kick and scream. My mum would have to drag me, physically drag me out of the car and I'd be like, I don't want to go because I was so overstimulated and I was probably burnt out a lot as a kid. Mm hmm. And also we weren't allowed to oversleep. Even on days where we didn't have to be up, we were not allowed to oversleep. Oh, okay. Um, it was like, you know, we might get an extra half an hour on a Saturday, but otherwise it was it was not allowed. So 
there was a lot of control, a lot of control. Mm. And, you know, my performance was considered more important than my well-being. Mm-hmm. And uh, any time that I said no or, or you know, kind of wanted to assert my own needs, I was punished for it a lot. Mm. Okay. So as one example, um, one of my main sports growing up was swimming and I swam very, very well. I'd done, I trained, you know, at least once a week for like, since I was small. And um, just before my 12th birthday, I started my periods mm-hmm. and I, I had said what, you know, I, I was explained, like told, like, this is, this is a sanitary towel. This is a pad. Like, this is what you do. And uh, I was like, what about tampons? And they're like, you're not old enough for that. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was taught it's it's an adult thing. But the moment they realized that it would interfere with my very competitive swimming, mm-hmm. I was told you have to. And I was like, ah, ah, no. Because you told me the other day that it was against your values. But now you're telling me that I have to do it for my performance. Right. So I know that this is wrong. I've caught you out. So I said no and I refused. So but oh. so but I was told, well, in that case, you can go and tell your swimming teacher in front of the whole class why you're not swimming. Oh my goodness. So I was like, fine. And I I would not back down because I was like, I, I've caught you out. I know that you're you're trying to manipulate me now. Well, so that at was that one age you figured that out. Wow. I know. Yeah, I was normally too scared, but I was like, I'm I'm drawing the line. And they mm-hmm. didn't they didn't know at that time that I'd already, you know, kind of suffered a, a, an in, intimate violation. And it right. felt like it was in that realm to me of like what you do with your body has to please other people before it pleases yourself. Right. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, in the last two years of school here, which um we call sixth form you you have normally specialized in three or four subjects maybe five if you're like super clever mm-hmm. and when i was doing them you would do exams at the end of the first year and again at the end of the second year and i was driven to get my results at the end of the first year and uh one of my parents who had taken me uh, waited in the car in the car park and said go and find out your results and come back and tell me and for everybody, even though it was a very high performing school, everyone had poor results the first year and it was very much expected. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't count towards your final grade. It was just a way to know your progress. OK, but I knew that that didn't that wasn't going to matter if it, if I wasn't getting 100 percent, 95 percent, then I was going to be in trouble. OK, and sure enough, I got poor grades like everybody else did. Uh, not that it should matter. But I I went out to the car and said, oh, well, I got, you know, these very low grades. I failed one. Mm -hmm. And I was like, given a rolled up the window and drove off and left me there in town. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it's so (sighs) odd because when I first when so when I first started this, um, sort of healing for, for this complex trauma one of my close friends she she said to me um she said I totally believe you when you say that you have childhood trauma and that your family life was like really messed up and dysfunctional she said but I don't really I have no picture of what that is and I remember saying to her I was like 
I don't even know how to say it. Like I want to tell you, I have no filter, so I don't mind. But mm-hmm. as I, I, I want to tell you what it is, but I don't even know how to say this. And it took the whole thing of going through this childhood trauma, my own childhood trauma healing, started to remember examples. And the thing is with complex trauma is that you can experience one thing and people might be like, oh, that was really wrong or that was that or that was a bit weird. But when mm-hmm. it's thousands of things all together, mm-hmm. that's when your brain is like, has to begins your conditions your it's it's a kind of brainwashing in a way right right it, it's teaching you to kind of jump through hoops and 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 be careful with every footstep you take everywhere you tread and it becomes this kind of anxiety and this like i can't safely exist i have to every moment that i'm awake i have to be aware of every single little thing that i'm doing in case it upsets somebody or in case it's not wanted right and it's years of treading on on eggshells is really psychologically damaging yeah well and, and that's so interesting because when i was teaching um I, I mean i have to say i was very very blessed that i i was raised in a family that there 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 was not any kind of abuse whatsoever not that it was perfect but but you know whether it was physical or mental abuse that was not a part of of my my foundation but i'll tell you when i started teaching and you have those students in your class that have been physically and mentally abused it's it it's quite the i i can't even i i wasn't even able to go to that spot of being able to even know and relate to what they had done and i took it upon myself to go and talk to our counselors on campus to help me to understand how I could help those students in my class to do their very best because it it then became not about them taking my course and passing the course. It became a, a matter for me of helping them to be the best person that they could possibly be in the world. It didn't matter that they were going to get, you know, all the concepts. I just wanted to know, I wanted them to know that when they were in my class for that hour or however long the class was, that I was there to help them however I could. And that, that was a tough thing to do. And then I would find that when they saw that I was really, I was trying to, to find out how to help them the best. That's when I I developed the best relationship with those kids because they could see it, it wasn't about the subject matter. It really was about me validating them as a person and wanting to be able to help them in my class, however I could. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, I, I don't think there's enough people in our world, whether it's through education or business, that's willing to learn about you, the person, and how they can to be a benefit to you instead of it's about the product. It's about the finished product and getting to that 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 finished piece of, of, of the equation. And we're, we're missing some valuable life lessons for ourselves and being able to connect with people on a completely different level. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that connection is is you know, by the ten years after we've left school, we don't remember a lot of it. No. But no. we do remember the teachers who cared. Yes. 
more than anything else. Yes. And I think being in that environment of a teacher who at the very least treats you with respect and is pleased to be there. Mm-hmm. It makes make, a big difference. Yeah, massive. Yeah. Well, I know that we're getting towards the end of our time together, but a couple of the questions that I always ask all of my guests, I would like to, to ask you now. So right now, at this point in time in your life, what what are you passionate about personally and professionally? I think it's got to be deep connection. And, and mm-hmm. obviously that's difficult to do when we're traumatized. Right. So, you know, whilst what I talk about is trauma, really the benefit of that is deep connection with other, other human beings which is the one, it's the most important factor for every person. Mm-hmm. So whether you've got a person who is, you know, ha- has severe um, health issues or is healthy, who is poor or rich or whatever demographics we look at, the number one predictor of life satisfaction and happiness is connection with other human beings. I love that. Yes. So, yeah, yeah that's... Now, what would you say right now, uh, currently, your purpose is personally and professionally? It's really hard to pick one. <laughs> um, well, well, that's a good thing. I guess. Yeah. I think I think my my thing at the moment very much is talking about trauma, how to heal from it, and actually what life looks like on the other side, because... I think when you're in trauma, you all you know is like this doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. and it's it's causing some real life problems. But to know what it's like afterwards is pretty awesome and worth it. So, and I, cool. so I think it's it's giving people hope. I think good. So, what would you say is your superpower? I think reading people. Oh. So, you know, obviously I've, I've educated myself about um, the work that I do so that I'm I'm educated and, I, you know, it helps me to use my intuition to help people. But I've always been good at reading people and picking up. And I've, I've even had some moments that would probably uh, cross the threshold into maybe even psychic stuff, which I feel weird saying, but it's well, happened and that I don't know yeah. how to explain it other than what happened. So, you know, and I... I think there's actually uh, more, I think people in general do have those. They just don't recognize them or acknowledge them. Yeah. So I think that's a good thing to do. Good. So how would you say that you're living your best life or as I like to say, living your best dash? Um, I feel very lucky at how many good friends I've got for a start. And that mm-hmm. that wasn't always the case. Me in the playground when I was a child, I was often on my own or maybe with one other kid that had been kicked out of the, the group. Mm-hmm. I was very lonely as a kid. And now I've got too many friends to keep up with. But they're all but they're amazing and they're lovely. And, you know, we've all got an interest in well-being and we, we can talk about real big things and we can be ourselves with each other and Good. talk about difficult stuff. Like it's it's like so different. Wonderful. I think the other thing is that I'm getting to do the work that I'm passionate about in a way that nurtures me as well. 
So I don't believe in alarms and getting up, like being scared awake every morning, but maybe that's just me. Um, you know, and I'm getting to work with people that I love working with, whether on right, really awesome podcasts like yours or, mm-hmm. you know, with my clients who I just love seeing them. So I think I, I feel very lucky. Excellent. Well, are there any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you would like to share with our audience? I don't know why I'm saying this so I'm guessing that someone needs to hear it but one of the questions I get asked all the time is when in relation to other people whether that's our partner or friends or family or anybody is when we is is this question around am I in the wrong am I being oversensitive or is that person being unkind or doing something wrong and I always say to people just because something triggers a trauma it doesn't mean that after that trauma that you're going to like the thing that they're doing and it's okay like not everything's about trauma like whether you've Mm -hmm. got trauma or you've not got trauma there's still going to be things that you don't like or that you don't find acceptable that just don't suit you Mm -hmm. so I think if you're a trauma survivor or you've put up with a lot of things or you're, you think about other people more than you think about yourself and you have those moments, allow yourself to want what you want and like what you like. And it doesn't mean that anybody's in the wrong. It's just, it's what suits you and it's what makes you happy or doesn't. Excellent. Very wise words indeed. Well, thank you so much, Harris, for being my guest today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I I could, this conversation could probably go on for another hour or two because that's how much I'm enjoying it. Um, Would you please tell everyone how they can connect with you if they would like to do that? Sure. So my uh, website is mxharrishill.com and everything's on there, all my social media links and stuff. Um, so you go go and find me on there if you need it. And thank you so much for having me here today. It's, I can't believe how quickly the time has flown. And, I, um... I, I agree 100% on that. <laughs> and, and for all of you out there listening or watching on YouTube, uh, know that all the links, uh, the link that Harris just mentioned, that uh, you'll be able to, to find it in the description uh, for today's podcast. So just look there, you'll be able to hit the link and you'll be able to connect directly to Harris. And I know that there's many of you out there right now listening, you're thinking, yes, I want to connect with her. Uh, because as you can tell from this interview, she is extremely engaging and uh, speaks on a level that uh, I know that we don't normally uh, get to 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 meet or hear from people. So so know that if you'd like to connect with her, hit them. that. Link Sorry, the, them. I I apologize for <laughs> that. Yes, if you would like to to connect with them, make sure that you hit that link in the description and know that you will be able to uh, to talk with them and find out uh, how to work with them in ways that maybe because because they they can even zoom with you right those of you that are in america and the rest of the world since we're we're global and international you will work with people through zoom zoom as well right yeah i i only work online there you go so that that that's another another positive for this podcast knowing that 
So uh, for those of you out there listening, remember to subscribe and follow this podcast and invite your family and friends to also subscribe to it as well. And you know what? While you're at it, go ahead and hit that five-star rating and write a review. That would be absolutely awesome. Don't forget to check out my website at www.pathwayswithpatty.org and sign up for a Zoom chat with me or to get you my free Pathway to a New Beginning Roadmap. So until we meet again, continue to live your best dash and know that life's an adventure and I want you to enjoy the journey because your life matters. Thank you for joining us today and God bless you all. Thank you.